Well, hi, everybody. It's the Week in the Tackle podcast, the podcast where we look at the previous week in soccer and or football and uh, tackle the stories we thought were interesting. I'm Tom Rennie. Always a pleasure to be with you and always a joy to be alongside MLS legend and top TV broadcaster, your friend of mine. It's Brian Dunny Dunseth. How are you, mate? You're right. Rennie, I'm good. I'm not as good as you. What do you do? You do the, the hammers. You do the hammers today next to Conference League trophy. It must have been a great day for you. I have had such a lovely day, I've got yeah. to say. It's been such a nice day. So I put these up on the old social media uh, platforms that I'm on, uh, Elon's one and uh, Zuckerberg's one. So, you know, very niche. Um, but basically today, right, I uh, when I went to the Conference League final, it was in Prague. Did you know that? I went to, I never mentioned I it. I know. Yeah. I keep yeah. it to myself. I went to Barcelona. Um, but uh, did you for so many weeks? So way, yeah. Say something in Spanish. Uh, hola, ¿cómo estás bien y tú? Uh, sí, that's, that's annoyingly quite good. Um, so I went to the Commerce League final in Prague, but unfortunately, you know this, a lot of our listeners will know this. Uh, unfortunately, uh, my dad had a heart attack in um, in May time around the FA Cup semi-finals. He's fine now. He's had a step and put in. He's doing well. He's, he's doing a lot better, but uh, he couldn't come to the game. And look, frankly, I couldn't have got him a ticket. I had to bung <laughs> some geezer from UEFA. Um, to to get a ticket for the game, um, but he couldn't have come anyway. And obviously, it was a very stressful night for uh, for, for for my dad as well, watching the game back at home. Uh, and anyway, it was such a great day, as you know. We did a whole show on it, and I bumped into people who went to school with my dad in like the the late fifties, early sixties. It was brilliant. Um, but he couldn't go, and it's a shame. Obviously, I would have loved to have gone with him because obviously it took into my first game in nineteen ninety three. Anyway, the trophy's on tour. Because it's half term here in England, so all the kids are going. I was like, well, I have my picture done with it in the centre of Prague. Let's go get one. Uh, let's go get a picture of us with the trophy. And so this morning we, we, we got down to Romford Town Centre, to the West Ham store where it's there for two days. We queued up with a bunch of children. Like it's all, yeah. it's all seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, ten-year-olds, and then I'm slightly older than that. You're with your dad, though. You're a yes. child as well. Yeah. Yes, that's true. So, so many, so many layers of that joke. He still got a uh, a child discount uh, for my photograph. <laughs> um, so that was lovely. So we got our picture done with the Conference League trophy, which was uh, excellent, and I think we all enjoyed it. And it's up on social media right now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was great. I, I'm really pleased we did it. And. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when we win another trophy in 40 years' time, I'll take his um, own. Oh, that's that's slightly awkward. Quick question. Um, why is your dad so good looking and you're not? Um, I think you'll find that most people, and that's not a great thing for me, <laughs> confuse us with like brothers. Oh. Um, I think you'll find we look exactly the same. And he's a very yeah. handsome man. And I'm pleased that um, that you'll take that, that you'll give me that compliment. That's nice of you. Thank you so yeah. much. I, I think you. I said he's much better looking, but just no. for clarification's sake. We're, we're going to edit that out. It's just going to be a big beep. It's going to be a big Abbas. old beep. Sorry, Tim. Um, so it was fantastic. I loved it. And also on, on Grumpy Pundits on, on Tuesday, we've got a whole bunch of people to mm. send in kind of their pictures of them with trophies because it's like it's always nice. Uh, and we've got people from all over America. Like I'm with a trophy in uh, – one was in like Cincinnati. One was in Philadelphia. What One was uh, – what was the story? It's one guy took his kid – I'll try and find it here. One guy took his kid to go and get his picture done. Here we go. It was cold. He said, 2021, my son and I went to see the Champions League trophy in Atlanta. It was a great father-son moment. After that, though, we walked out to our car to see a window busted out and our overnight bags were stolen, including my son's soccer bag, for a tournament that he was supposed to play in. All in all, not a great weekend. 
good. I enjoyed yeah. that. Anyway, yeah. right. Let's get to it. Loads to get to today. I want to talk a bit about the end of the beginning. That's where we are in the Premier League now. The first quarter is down. And so oh, okay. um, it's the time you can actually look at the Premier League table, which I always enjoy. There's a few incidents from the weekend that I would like your view on, uh, including the fact that <laughs> Liverpool aren't going to get uh, anyone replay. sent off anymore. Let's go replay. Play the game. Replay the game. They should. Uh, and all that sort of stuff. But, Danny, you were involved in a massive day uh, in American mm. soccer this weekend. Uh, we're now in that bit where the season has ended. But for some reason in America, no one really gives a shit, sorry, Tim, about the soccer until postseason, which, to the rest of us, is still the season. So it was MLS Decision Day. You were working on it. How was it? What did we learn? What did oh. we know? What's coming up? What can you tell us? Yeah, so Bredos and I were uh, we were in St. Louis. And, um, by the way... I've got to send you this picture. I can't. I don't know if I can send you a picture. Okay, I'm going to send you a picture. Give me two sex, two tiddlywinks. Here it comes. You ready? I need you to click on this picture as I talk. Okay. Because go there's on. something called toasted raviolis. That sounds quite nice. Toasted raviolis in St. Louis. Okay. And we um, were able to get our hands on some toasted raviolis, and they are incredible. This they looks are, amazing. They are. King extraordinary. Sorry, Tim. I thought you were going to be doing like a footy scran thing where they tasted like feet. You, you, I I probably should have, been, but I'm not on. I'm on the X, but I'm not on the X, but I'm on the X, but I'm not on yeah. the X. So I didn't. I don't you know got a burner it, account. Yeah, I, I haven't tweeted. Ryan Bunseth. Yeah, yeah, the trout. Um, I <laughs> I uh, they 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 are so king good. Sorry, Tim. And we we had to do kind of like this this pseudo live recorded shot with like the players in the background. But then we had to run back upstairs because our, our show was about to start. And I inhaled like four of these things in like 30 seconds. I mean, unbelievable. So St. Louis tip of the cap, uh, St. Louis city SC expansion team run away with the Western conference. They win the Western conference. Uh, they were coming off a loss on the road in Vancouver, but rotation, it was three games in seven days. They were traveling to Vancouver it was on artificial surface. It was ahead of the international break. They end up losing, so they've got a big stretch of time to try to get momentum back on their side and figure everything out. Um, and they end up losing 2 nothing to a very good Seattle Sounders side. If you talk about the eyeball test, St. Louis played really, really well, but in those fine margins, those moments, weren't able to punish the mistakes of their opponents. They outshot, outgenerated chances, but Se Seattle was just ruthless with Jordan Morris up top, Christian Roldan on that right-hand side. They've got this kid, Reed Baker Whiting, an 18-year-old homegrown product, was playing on left back. He got he was involved. We thought he scored his first goal, but they called it an own goal because of deflection off the defender. Should have given it to him. It was a feel-good factor moment. Give it to him. So Why Seattle, when it's all said and done, struggles through June, July, and August, gets knocked out of League's Cup in the group stage, and ends up just three points out of first place in the Western Conference. So now they've got home field advantage. They'll be squared up with FC Dallas at the start. It's next Monday is the first game. Max Bredos and I will be on uh, Seattle against FC Dallas in that uh, matchup. But on Wednesday night, you're going to have a huge battle. Where's my schedule? A uh, huge battle. You've got New York Red Bulls against Charlotte in the knockout round. So winner goes into face FC Cincinnati. Congratulations at FC Cincinnati at the weekend. And then sporting Kansas city at home against San Jose and you get St. Louis. Um, so it's going to be fun. It's exciting. The best of three phase is a little bit different. An ode to the past of MLS playoffs where the games won't go to extra time. It'll be 90 minutes and straight to penalties. So it's got an element of leagues cup to it. It's mm. not about aggregate scoreline. It's not about score on the road. It's just a straight up win. 
best of three series. So Seattle, if they if they win and then they do the business in Dallas, they don't have to worry about that third game, which would be at home. But there is that opportunity for the higher seed to have home field advantage throughout the course of the playoffs. I can't wait. I love playoff soccer. MLS, it's the turn of the, you know, the 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 leaves change, the air gets a little bit crisper, a little bit colder, and you kind of know it's playoff time in Major League Soccer. Explain that to me again. Yeah. So how is this going to work? So there's a best of three tournament to go so, into what the final. So it's still so the context. Yeah, I'll get. I'll give you the umbrella. So on Wednesday, you have number eight and nine in the in the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference. So number eight and nine in the playoffs. Okay. Um, how it all ends in the format. Number eight hosts team number nine mm-hmm. in both brackets. It's a one-off game, and the winner gets to play the number one seed in the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference. So New York Red Bulls finished in eighth position. John Tolkien scored a penalty and then like 90th plus five to win one nil at home. So they are at home against Charlotte FC. So the winner of that game ends up playing FC Cincinnati at the weekend. Sporting Kansas City finished eighth um, and then San Jose finished ninth. So that game's in Kansas City. The winner of that game at the weekend will play St. Louis. Okay. And then two play seven and, and on and on. So it's um it's it's a really exciting time. I I that's the knockout round. Then it goes in the best of three series. The best of three series is home, then away. But if if you, each team's won, then you go back to the home field advantage, the higher seeded team. So that's why seeding matter. When people talk about like, oh, the game in the summer doesn't matter. I get the context because we're doing the promotion relegation thing. Mm. But the real context is making the playoffs and then having home field advantage. So for example, let's use Seattle Sounders for, for, for a quick example. So where the way the bracket is, St. Louis will play the winner of Sporting Kansas City, San Jose. That winner will then play the winner of Houston, Real Salt Lake. That I'll call mm-hmm. that the north side of the bracket. The south side of the bracket is LAFC against Vancouver and then Seattle against FC Dallas. Should, because they finish second place in the Western Conference, Seattle will have home field advantage against FC Dallas. They'll have home field advantage against the winner of LAFC against Vancouver. And unless St. Louis makes it to the conference final, Seattle, by proxy of winning, being in second position, could have home field advantage. So if Seattle gets knocked out, or excuse me, St. Louis gets knocked out, Seattle has home field advantage throughout the entirety of the Western Conference. Now, here's the thing. FC Cincinnati is twist. yeah twist. So FC Cincinnati is best in the East. They won the supporter shield. They yes. ran away with the league title. So effectively, if we're talking promotion relegation, they would have won the league. They would have been Man City from last year. If they get knocked out, then the second best total points will host the MLS Cup final. So this is what makes it super interesting, where your regular season record possibly determines how many home games you get to host and or if you actually get to host an MLS Cup final. So should Philadelphia make the run all the way to the MLS Cup final, they are hosting the MLS Cup final in Cincinnati. Should they get knocked out, well, then it could be St. Louis. It could be Seattle. It could be Orlando. It all depends on who has the most total points for teams that are still in the playoffs. So, I love it. I'm excited. I know people are always talking about, well, MLS is changing the format. MLS just has to be nimble. They have to be creative because as they've continued to add all of these teams, they've had to figure out the right balance of success and failure and Mm -hmm. what constitutes success and failure. Success is making the playoffs. 
failure is missing out on the playoffs. That's just number one. And people say, oh, there's no consequence. Eight head coaches lost their job this year. Mm-hmm. The most that we've seen. So I think we're starting to see a little bit more of tightening the screws where owners are saying, okay, we're going to hold people accountable. I don't care how many years left they have on their contract. This is not working. We're not willing to deal with this. It's not worth saving a million bucks. We're going to pull the trigger when we need to pull the trigger. And we're going to make the move when we need to make the move. But then now you're also thinking about in the playoff format, there's different qualification phase. You've got Campiones Cup. You've got uh, CONCACAF Champions Cup, the regional tournament and qualifying for that, which then represents the CONCACAF region at FIFA Club World Cup. So there's a bunch of things that are inside the MLS playoff sphere that aren't just the playoffs. Hmm. Um, Because you start qualifying for different formats and, and different tournaments outside of US Open Cup, MLS season, MLS Cup playoffs. All of a sudden, the kitty gets a little bit deeper. The money becomes a little bit more available. And then as you would know very, very well, once you qualify for Europe, a Paqueta shows up or an Edson Alvarez shows up, or a Kudis shows up, or a James Ward-Prowse shows up, because now you got a little bit more equity in saying, hold on, we're not just an MLS team, we're a regional Champions League team or participant. And for a lot of people in South America and Central America in particular, that that's a great carrot to have because that's a little bit different of a conversation when you're talking about the spotlight and the potential arc of a player's career. Uh, Tim, do we have any paracetamol after that? Everyone else got a headache? Yeah? Good. Why are American sports so complicated? Why are they all so complicated? It blows my mind. I love it. I'm into it. Um, And I just look forward to you explaining it to us on a weekly basis over the next three weeks or so. Um, Before we move off this, just give us a quick couple of tips. Tell us who your favorite is and pick us Mm. out a dark horse from from who's in the list. Uh, Let's go Eastern Conference. I think FC Cincinnati is the favorite. Um, And I don't know if they're a dark horse, but I think Orlando City and the run of form that they've been in. Oscar Pereja, a former teammate of mine in, in both New England and in Dallas, um, I think they could cause a lot of havoc, a lot of problems. So, so you went say, first and second. It wasn't the biggest uh, well, upset because, and favorite ever. <laughs> so I'm going to go why. for number one and number two to win. Yeah. Christ, here, here, here's why. Orlando City, they weren't <laughs> stuttering, but they weren't blowing doors off people. Hmm. And literally in the last month and a half, they went from like this to just going straight up. So uh, Dark Horse, yes, they finished in second place. I understand you know, the equivalence of, of you say, what, hold on a second. Um, I don't, I would, I would have said Nashville because of defensively, but they've completely gone off the boil in the final third. Atlanta United is an interesting one because they've kind of found their spark, but Tiago Amada got a red card in the final game of the season. So he won't be available for the first game. And that's going to be in Columbus. I think Wilfred Nancy for me has been one of the best managers in MLS in the regular season, but he won't win manager of the year with the way that Pat Noonan's FC Cincinnati and Bradley Carnell's St. Louis have played. Um, so, and 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 then Philadelphia. you got to always think that Philadelphia and Jim Curtin and the run that they've been on for the past two, three seasons, there's sweat equity of experience. So I think any of those teams I would have said aren't really considered a dark horse. Um, I mean, uh, a Bruce Arena-less New England revolution that's kind of figured out, despite all the havoc, how to control the controllables on the field might be considered one of the dark horses, but I don't I don't really see them making a deep run, especially having to figure out how to deal with Philadelphia and having to face the winner of FC Cincinnati versus whoever wins New York Red Bulls in Charlotte. So I'm going to stick with my original, even though you're trying to shame me, I'm going to stick with my original <laughs> favorite is is uh, <laughs> FC Cincinnati, dark horse, Orlando City. Now on the, 
West Coast. Give us a dark horse. I'd say Manchester City for the Premier League. Dark horse. <laughs> um, a dark horse. They won the U.S. Open Cup. They beat mm. Inter Miami. I'm going to go with Benny Ball. I think the dark horse is the Houston Dynamo. You talk right. about a turnaround uh, this season. Coco Carasquilla, the Panamanian international, I think is in for a big transfer window in January. I think he's one of the best players in the CONCACAF region. Hector Herrera, guy they call Ache Ache, Mexican international, just brought a different perspective to what the Houston Dynamo has done. And Benny Olsen went from, I don't know how to explain it, much maligned, judged manager at DC United for the haves or have-nots. You know, is Was he a good manager? Was he not a good manager? Because he was kind of up and down seasons, but he was never really given the financial backing from the club. Now he takes over Houston. He's got the financial backing and this this club's absolutely flying, and they're really difficult to beat in Houston. So, and and by the way, we don't know St. Louis yet. For for all of the things that they've done in the regular season, there's only a couple players that have the experience in MLS Cup playoffs, and we don't we don't have a litmus test of how they are going to perform in these kind of odd nights of the three game series balancing the results versus the knockout round one game and you're out. Because what we just saw at home, which has been just a lion's den of a, a performance over the course of the season, they end up losing 2-0 on the final day to to Seattle. And people are like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. If you ask Bradley Carnell, South African fire through and through, he was f***ing pissed. Sorry, Tim. Uh, because it was, I think everything is proving grounds for St. Louis. You know, there was a team that everyone thought, well, I don't know about this roster. Can they even win five games? They end up winning 17 games on the season. So what their potential is, they could win the West. What they are going to do, I would just reference a couple of seasons ago when both the New England Revolution, the Colorado Rapids, both in Eastern and Western Conference finished first. They both got knocked out in their very first game. And season done, season open, over, bitterly disappointed. Um, So... I think St. Louis has to be favored to an extent, but I think there's a little bit of skepticism with what they're going to be ultimately capable of doing. It's a really good time to know someone that works for Apple covering MLS. It's a really good time to, tell you. to have a friend. What? What you, you got something? for me? What? You got me a job? All of the playoff games for the wild card and the first round will be available free on Apple TV. So I don't need to be an MLS Season Pass customer or an nope. Apple TV subscriber Completely or continue to free. beg my friend Brian Dunsell for his login details. Completely free, first oh, round. Okay. So this is for people in the UK as well. I'm not in America. I think it's everywhere. I think right. if you have Apple TV, it is 100% free, these wildcard games in the opening round of, uh, of these playoffs. I'm going to get it until Columbus Crew lose to Atlanta in a few days' time and then just cancel my subscription immediately. Um, Danny, we're looking forward to it. Uh, and of course, we're going to cover it here on Weekend Attack when Danny will be on planes all over the country uh, covering all of the MLS postseason action. Um, the other thing I want to talk about today, Danny, was the end of the beginning. It's one of my favorite mm-hmm. parts of the season um, because we're, we're one game away now from being over the quarter, right? We're nine games down, nine to 36, and... By the time we've played a games this weekend, we're now over the quarter. And I always say to people, and I normally do it to myself because mm. my team are usually in a relegation battle and I really feel like it's going to be miserable from November onwards. So I think if we're crap the first 10 games, let's not panic. There's a lot of time to, to get this right, so don't panic. But when you get to game 10, um, that's when you start taking more trips to the restroom uh, to have a little cry. Um, 
So we're there, right? And there's a couple of teams I want to talk about here because I think we can maybe pick out a couple of Premier League surprise packages. Not like your sort of surprise package, you know, Man City, uh, but teams that maybe we didn't expect uh, big things from uh, this season who I think have been really, really good. One of them Mm. is Aston Villa, which we'll get to second. But firstly, I want to talk to you a bit about Tottenham Hotspur and talk to you about what the start of this season has been like. Before we do, though, I want to do one of the favourite things that we do on this podcast for you. Let's play a little quiz. Um, Ange Postacoglu has had the best start to a Premier League career as a manager in history. Mm -hmm. No one in the 31 years of the Premier League's existence has had a record this good after nine games. So it's nine games played, seven victories, two draws. Now, statistically, if you go with uh, Opta, right, they have actually had the easiest start of any team in the league um, on the quality and uh, finishing position of the teams from last season. So absolutely accept that. And I think it's a legitimate conversation that we may well have. However, seven victories, two draws. Uh, Can you name me the rest of the top ten? So the top 10 managers to have started the best across Mm. nine games in their Premier League career. Just throw some names at me, buddy, and I'll tell you who's right and who's wrong. Uh, Pellegrini? Uh, Manuel Pellegrini is not uh, in the top 10, 20, 30, or 50. So, no. Uh, Roberto Mancini. Roberto Mancini is not in the list either. Oh, my gosh. Of the best starts in Premier League history. Um... And it's his first experience in Premier League for like the very first time. It can't be like with a new team. Uh, It has to be their first nine games in their Premier League League. Yes. Yes. Well, it's got to be Pep, right? Pep's uh, obviously in there. No. Pep's not in there? Pep Guardiola is, or technically is tied for 10th. Okay. Uh, So sort of kind of maybe, but he isn't the highest in that little group. So... Yes, yes and no. He would okay. be tenth. But... Arsene Wenger. No, no, he's wow, not in here. Okay. This is because amazing. I love this. I don't. I, I feel like Jurgen Klopp can't be in there because in the beginning there was a bit of a struggle at Liverpool. As no, he well, was... you, do you know what? You are very good at naming people who are not in this list. You well, are no, because I. I'm you are fucking love... nailing it. I'm for going bad for... guesses. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Sorry, Tim. Tim. Uh, I'm going. I'm going with the most well-known managers. There's some very um, famous names in here. One of them is jo- your Jose. all-time favorite. Yeah, Jose. Jose's in there. No. Louis Van Hall. No. David Moyes. No. <laughs> uh, it's where are we going? Sir Alex? No. Christ, what is <laughs> happening right now? Sorry, Tim. Um What if I had be, a stupid it, hat on? It couldn't be oh it's Timmy Tickles. Yes! Uh, he okay. is in there at uh, number eight. Uh, six wins, sense. three draws, twenty one points. Antonio Conte. No. Wow. These are some huge managers. Uh, Vias Boas. No. Poach. No. Uh, Antonio, uh, uh, oh my gosh, uh, Antonio Conte. No. Uh, the banker. Who's Real Madrid manager now? Ancelotti. Yes, Carlo no. Ancelotti, 21 no. points, uh, from his first, um, nine games in charge, but two defeats and seven victories. Yeah. Um, who's Aston Villa manager now? Unai Emery, but he was terrible at Arsenal. No, he wasn't. His first nine games was uh, seven victories and two defeats, 21 points. Wow. A really amazing start. Uh, there's one other one I think you'll get. There's two, actually, I think you'll get, and the rest I'll just tell you. Um, fat bloke that went to Chelsea from Holland. Fat bloke that went from Chelsea 
to ho- oh uh, Ronald Koeman. Oh no, oh. Uh, slight, even fatter. <laughs> Who am I going blank on? Perfect name for a fat mouse in Cinderella. Oh, I don't know that. Uh, Gus Hiddink. There you go. Gus, Gus Hiddink. Yes. Good okay. Uh, and the other one I think you'll get is... I wouldn't uh, say Sh- Goose is fat. F*** off. <laughs> He's healthy. Yeah, sorry, Tim. Um, and the other one you'll get is chain-smoking Chelsea manager. Yeah, I said the banker, Maurizio Sarri. You didn't say his name, though. You said the banker. That well, wasn't useful knows. to me. Everybody knows he's the banker. Maurizio Sarri, Sarri. Uh, the other ones you wouldn't have got, I don't think. Um, Mike Walker? Nope. Uh, Mike Walker was Norwich City manager in 1992, first Premier League season. His record held until 2009 when Gus Hiddink took it. And now, Post- and now Posta Kuglu's uh, Posta got the record. Um, in 1994, Nottingham Forest manager, would you have got this? Mm, probably not. Frank Clark? Uh, no. Maybe no. with a push, you might have got it. And the other one is um, John Gregory. Uh huh. John Gregory. Okay. I think when he took over Villa. Villa. Must have been. Right? right? It's got to be Villa. Must be Villa because he was useless everywhere else. Anyway, there's your list. I enjoyed that. Um, right. Tottenham Hotspur. Tell us how this has happened. I went to the game Monday Night Football and I've got some views on it, but I'd love your view first on. You sell Harry Kane. You sell your best best player. I mean, we could have a conversation now and an argument about is he the best striker in Europe? Is it Haaland? Is it Lewandowski? Is it Kane? You know, we, we could have that. I think it'd be quite fun. But whatever way you slice it, he is an elite of the elite, amazing quality, superb footballer. And they sold him. After years and years and years of when they sell Kane, Tottenham Hotspur are going to fall to their knees and be bleeding useless forevermore. Mm. Um, and they've gone on to have, statistically, at least manager by manager, um, the best start ever in, in a Premier League season across nine games. How's it happened? Why have they improved? And are you buying into it? Or is it just because their fixtures have been relatively easy? Well, it's fantastic. As you sent me, as you made that statement about Opta, I, uh, I, I've got a, a group called Tatnam Lunacy, and it's Gabe Ortiz and it's Headley. Gabe used to be a part of the channel uh, on the backside of Tim Horsey-esque, but not as good looking as Tim Horsey. Definitely it not is. the same hair. Uh, and then Headley, our man in Detroit. Um, and I just said, Opta says that Tottenham's had the easiest schedule so far out of all the Premier League teams. And you should see the text messages flying in right now. It's amazing. It's so, listen, <laughs> it's it's amazing. I was literally teasing him yesterday. I was like, oh, he's like, oh, we're first place. We're first place. I was like, great. Let me see the participation ribbon you guys have gotten for <laughs> October 24th and being top of the Premier League. <laughs> Well done. They Arsenal got one, didn't they? Don't Arsenal get one, then Tottenham get it afterwards. That's the rules. It's amazing. Yeah, it's it's a shared it's a shared ribbon. Participation trophies. Everybody gets one. Listen. Be nice. Ange's Come done, on. Be nice. Ange has done an incredible job navigating what this Harry Kane situation was going to be and what we feared was going to happen, losing the best striker in the Premier League. And I know you can make arguments for other people, but the best striker in the Premier League, um, an England captain, and trying to figure out, because we saw this on so many different occasions, so many different players being bought to be the backup, the just-in-case, the inevitable moment when you know Harry Kane went down with a knee injury or his ankle ligaments were stretched again or the fatigue was just burning him out. Guys came and went. Because no one could displace him. The ceiling was so high that nobody could break through that glass ceiling. So the threat of Harry Kane was always a a clear and present danger. And it got worse and worse to the point where he makes his move. It's working out for him without a shadow of a doubt. No problem. He's doing an amazing job at Bayern Munich playing for Timmy Tickles. 
But I still do think they have an issue. Richarlson is nowhere close to the finisher that Harry Kane was. And and listen, someone out there is going to be like, but who is? There's not. There, th- this is a, an elite of the elite type of conversation we're having when we're talking about Harry Kane. But where I think Tottenham benefited was the demise of what we saw from Leicester City. Because had Leicester City not been relegated, I don't think Tottenham pulls off what could be the signing of the summer in James Madison. James Madison is the perfect player for Tottenham. He makes Son better. He makes Kulisevsky better. He makes anybody in that midfield better around him. He can hit balls and see passes that nobody else on that team can do. He does it differently from the other players. So by subtraction on two different ways, right? Harry Kane leaving and Leicester City getting relegated. The addition is the perfect fit. And James Madison now is in that category of what we've been talking about when you're thinking about, you know, players that can move the ball around, ping the ball around, who could be difference makers. It was always a comparison of Leicester City, Aston Villa, James Madison, Jack Grealish. Jack Grealish makes the jump to Man City. It's a whole different kettle of fish. He's in the side. He's called up. Jack Grealish is one of the best players in the world. Blah, 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 blah. James Madison gets relegated. Good player, team. Sorry, Tim. Now, all of a sudden, James Madison in performance at Tottenham gets him back in England. There's still a conversation about Gareth Southgate. Right guy, wrong guy, loyalty, sweat equity. Is he playing the right players? Blah, blah, blah. Conversation for another day. But Madison is playing well. So you have a style, you have an identity, um, a fluidity. You're creating goal-scoring chances in a much different manner um, than what you were doing with Harry Kane. It's not just a one-two punch with Sonny and Harry Kane down that kind of hybrid of point striker, left-hand side in transition opportunities. Uh, So credit where credit's due. Here's the other part about this. Hmm. Because Tottenham was so bad last year, and right now the position that they're in, There is no reason, because they dumped out of EFL Cup after the very first match, they don't have Champions League, they don't have Europa League, they don't have Conference League. Like right now, you look at the schedule, I I tell you this all the time, I write this stuff down, we're just doing international windows. For those at home on YouTube, you can see, that's Tottenham. Well, that's Tottenham. Look at those games. Look at how many games they got. Yeah. Look at the other guys. For those in the audio medium, how would you describe it? Uh, Spurs have four games between the October and November window. Yes. Arsenal has seven. Mm-hmm. City has six. Chelsea has five. Man United has seven. Liverpool has seven. So as much as I talk about, and we've seen this before, remember Chelsea a few years ago when they were terrible one year and they lift the trophy, lift the Premier League title the next year. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said about teams that have an entire week off. The rest, the recuperation, the preparation, the tactics, the approach versus teams that when you're playing the top six, the guys that are already in Champions League or Europa League or Conference League football, that it's a short turnaround time. It's a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday that you're kind of thinking about travel. And then all of a sudden you got one day, it's going to be a soft walkthrough with some possession, with some tactical movement, and then straight into the game. So there's, I would say, There's never been a better season for Tottenham Hotspur to not just be a top four team, 
but to be a Premier League title contending team, 100%. Hmm. The, 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 right now, you're out of EFL Cup, you only have Premier League, and you only have FA Cup. Why shouldn't we have a certain amount of pressure being placed on the shoulders of this group? Because you beat you beat Fulham. Great. You're supposed to beat Fulham. The level of expectation isn't just competition. If you are who you think you are, then we're talking about style. We're talking about substance. We're talking about identity. We're talking about incredible amounts of goal-scoring opportunities. We're talking about defensively stout. How many clean sheets are we thinking about? Are we talking about? And where do the inevitable slip-ups happen? The inevitable slip-up is going to happen. No team's going undefeated. We know that at some point, points are going to be dropped. But when squeaky bum time happens, and all of a sudden during the winter season where you get these glut of games with short turnaround time, I'd be intrigued to see the management because they should be fresher than everybody else in this title push. Again, it's trophy ribbon time. It's literally a quarter of the season. Congrats. You're incredible. But now let's see with the pressure of being in the front as opposed to chasing what this starts to look like. I think you make so many interesting points in that. And I think it was quite notable last night from Postacoglu's post-match interview and his press conference to um, the word around the camp being that he was really unhappy with that second half performance where for the first time this season, Tottenham cruised. In every other game, there has been a battle. Even when they've been expected to win, there's been a sense of peril about the result. You think about Sheffield United, the last-minute goal. You think about Liverpool, the last-minute goal. You think about the Arsenal game and, and how tight and close that was and either team could have won it and all of that. Uh, the Fulham game, Fulham are terrible, and in another year they could be in some serious trouble. I note Marco Silva signed a new contract, which means I think they're already building to next season, which makes sense because this season's already a write-off. Raul Jimenez, 30 games now without a goal, and he's your striker. Give me a break. Who scouted that one? Um, but Postacoglu coming out saying, I was really unhappy with that because I think it was almost a little bit like, I don't know, there's an expectation now that Tottenham are going to entertain all the way through. You could hear, feel it in the crowd who have suffered through the dirge of Antonio Conte's football and Jose Mourinho's football without any success that they were like, oh, we're going to have some entertainment. We're going to score three, four, five, six. And actually what the players were like was, oh, what do we do now? Because there's expectation from the crowd as opposed to... Um, we're going to push it to the end to get a win against Sheffield United. They were like, right, of course we're 2-0 up. We're top of the league with the best team in it. And it was a really weird watch. And it was a really weird conversation with Tottenham fans on the way home. And I'm away with my brother-in-law this week. He was a big Tottenham fan. So I'm sure we'll talk about it a fair amount. Uh, certainly when we watch the West Ham European game together on Thursday. And I get to continually say, ha, Europe, eh? Trophies, yeah. eh? Isn't it amazing? And he can now say, <laughs> yeah, we're top of the league, bud. And that's going to screw me up a little bit. But I'll still push it hard. Don't worry. Um, but that's going to be really interesting. I think you make a really good point there. And just briefly, just to build on your point, only because I just like to mention it on the show, you know how much I love James Madison. I've been saying this to you now for such a long time. I, yeah. I just, there are so few players that I would pay to watch play that don't play for my team. Yeah. And, and some of the players I've listed to you over the years, people like Wilfred Zaha, you know, he can just beat five people and it's so thrilling to watch him. You know, obviously, Ronaldo, Messi types. But there are other players that I think I just love to watch them. And James Madison's in that group for me. I love the way he glides around the field. I love the way he pops up in different positions. I love the way he instigates into play with Son and Udogi. And occasionally, when he absolutely has to, Richarlison. I, I <laughs> love the way to pass to. when there's literally nobody else. <laughs> there was one where he played it to Richarlison, who ballooned it over the top. And he was pissed that the shot went, went yeah. as badly as it did. There was the one where Son got in his way when Calvin Bassey was desperate yep. to try and give Fulham a third goal and Son got in his way and he was pissed. I wanted that. 
Uh, but also, he, he plays he plays balls to other people. They're just so they're so visionary. Like he just sees pockets and sees runners, and you can see the other players in the Fulham game, um, a doggy specifically, but Son as well. That they just know that he can find him, and so you see players be a little bit more daring. They be a bit more. He's going to get me the ball. It makes me think a bit about Dimitri Payet. Hmm. When Dimitri Payet w- went to West Ham, and obviously the jump between him and everyone else was like. I haven't got enough length on my arm to stretch to the difference between Andy <laughs> Carroll and, and yeah. Dimitri Payet, right? But he lifted everyone. I remember that season. You were like, everyone thinks he's not going to lose the ball. Everyone thinks he's going to keep it. And because he's going to keep it, I can move another 10, 15, yeah. 20 yards forward. Aaron Cresswell had an incredible season that year, that year because he knew Payet wasn't going to lose it. And you see that here, Danny, with James Madison. You know, Son's an incredible world-class player. I think he would do a 25-goal season if he stays fit, and that could be pivotal uh, for a title challenge, uh, which right now they are in. You're in it till you're not, and you're in it. Sorry, Spurs fans, don't at me, but you are. Um, And you can just see everyone feels, even Son feels a little bit more like he's going to find me, so I'll make that run. Yeah. He's gonna. He's not going to lose. And, and he, you know, the Arsenal game, he did lose it famously in his own box. But, Danny, just tell us a little bit about what it's like to play with someone like that who you can 100% trust, and so it gives you confidence to, to, to do more. Do you remember Lionel Alvarez, the guy who played behind Valderrama? Long, curly, black hair. He had a mustache. Thighs the size of tree trunks played big for Colombia, but they all had big pumps. Yeah, yeah, they all. It was, it was, it was, yeah, it was a vaguely, thing. It was yeah. gorgeous. It was gorgeous. So I played with him in um, in New England, and there were so many times where I got to know him on and off the field. Had some incredible experiences with him on and off the field. He's one of my favorite human beings on the planet. But we called him El Baron, like the Baron. Like he was the guy, the fighter pilot cartoons where he had his helmet on, the big, big bushy mustache. Yeah, so we called him Baron. He would destroy people. And I can always remember like from the very first training session, like he was always asking for the ball. He always wanted the ball, like not demanding the ball, but like, I'm checking, I'm, I'm here for you. And the confidence that he gave me, and I've played a bunch, I, you know, I was next to Alexi Lawless and I was next to Mike Burns and I had John Harks on the team. I played with Waldo. I had Joe Max Moore. I had all these like really established U.S. men's national team players early in my career. But there was something about Leo Alvarez that it was just different. And I don't know how to verbalize it correctly, but it was it was a warm blanket type of feel. Like when I knew Leo was next to me, that number one, the accountability was and the criticism was always going to be constructive. Like he'd get into me, he'd dig into me, like vamos, God, like vamos, like he would yell at me. But at the same time, like he there there was like a a big brother feel. Like I got you. Like don't worry, man. Like we can do this. I got you. And I just remember. Every time I had Leo in front of me, I could play him a ball, maybe to the not the right foot to get myself out of trouble. And he was totally fine with it. He would always say, like, if you panic, just find me. Like, if you can't figure it out, find me. Like, we'll get out of this together. And I feel like when I watch Madison, he's just one of those players. I never, like, equated my experience with with Leo to this. But, like, when I watch Madison, he's just the, he's one of those special players that when he gets on the ball and he starts pinging starts dancing, starts moving it. To your point, because he's capable of getting in and out of certain situations, he's extremely comfortable 1v1 or 1v2, that he's not going to force a ball that doesn't need to be forced. And he can hit a cut, a blind ball cut. You know, He can hit that one with a tight little lace coming back across his body over his left foot. 
or a ball comes in and he can dink one with his right and kind of spin to his left. Like he's just got, he's got this, like I equate it to like when you, when you get to a certain level, I can remember there was moments where I was in trouble and I got out of trouble and I don't remember in like a split second, I didn't know how I got out of trouble. I was just reacting, but I wasn't that good of a player to do that consistently. Like I always kind of knew I had a couple things in my back pocket of how to get myself out of a certain situation if I needed to, dark arts included. Um, but with there, there's a moment where almost everything slows down. I don't. This it's the only way I can give you the analogy in the description. It's almost as if everybody's running at full speed, but you see it in slow motion, and you're almost. It's not anticipating, but like the game slows down for you, and then it's just reaction as opposed to thinking. And you've got these moments where you're doing stuff and you don't even realize what you're doing, but it's all, it, it, it's, you, you just, it's instinctual. Like, you know how to get yourself. And that's when I look at him, he's, he's doing things on such an instinctual level that he's not even thinking about it, that he's that high of a player. Mm-hmm. And so inevitably everybody else, it's the feel good factor. Oh, dude, we got, we got Maddo in the middle. Like we're good. Like oh, he's going to get us on the ball. Oh, we need something. He okay. I I know I got to make that run. I can suck out this left back, or I can put I can pinch this midfielder. That'll give him just a little bit more space because he's good enough. He's not going to lose the ball. I'm not going to have an oh f- moment. Sorry, Tim, where I'm turning around sprinting because I was trying to anticipate something, but now I'm being punished and I'm reacting. He's he's just really really good. I never thought I'd be in a situation where I'm just waxing poetic about Madison for a good five minutes. Ugh, participation trophy. I know, feels gross. Um, I do want to ask you about Aston Villa, uh, the other team from the, the, the beginning of the season that I think have really, really been brilliant. And there's a couple of things I wanted to point out to people. A big win against West Ham this weekend, by the way. And, you know, painful for me and all that sort of stuff. But Skamaka! You know, yeah. Uh, uh, West Ham are a good team. So to beat them for four is really impressive. Brighton are a good team. They beat them for six. That's really impressive. 11 straight wins at home. Look, only I think Tottenham of any real worth in that group. They've beaten like, Palace twice in that run, fine. Bit like the Tottenham thing earlier on, but you've got to win those games and that's how you build a platform. Um, since Unai Emery got the job at Aston Villa, which was just over a year ago, uh, 68 points picked up. If that was across an entire season, you know, and that's not how it works, they would be fourth. Man City top on 81, Arsenal 74, Liverpool 71, then Aston Villa would have 68. So across his year in charge, uh, they would be the fourth best team in the Premier League. And I just wanted to read a, a few names to you, Danny, and, and then ask you a question. Um, Emmy Martinez, Matty Cash, hmm. Esri Consa, Luca Dina, Douglas Luiz, uh, Bubakar Kamara, um, John McGinn, and Ollie Watkins. That's five, six, seven, eight players who started against West Ham this weekend, plus Leon Bailey who came on. So nine of 13, they were all there when Steven Gerrard got the sack after a 3-0 hmm. loss against Fulham just over a year ago. Aston Villa had Steven Gerrard. They knew they'd hired a bum coach with no personality and had to do something. And so what they decided to do was sack him overnight, have Emery lined up and get Emery, who was in a job, out of the job, into England to take over Aston Villa. Um, The job he's done there to improve these players, the job he's done there to give these players a sense of belief is really impressive. And the other thing, Dunny, is that they're playing very un-Emery. You know, you would have seen Unai Emery's career, as I would have done, a lot of our listeners would have done over the years. There's a certain caution that we expect from Unai Emery. Good football, yes. Lots of wins, yes. Cup runs, yes. But I don't expect 4-1 and 6-1 against rivals for similar positions. You Mm. know, 
fourth to ninth is where West Ham uh, and uh, and Brighton will be looking, right? And they've thrashed them. So tell us a bit about how Unai Emery has been able to improve these players, get these performances, and do it without spending the monster money that usually you associate with someone making this sort of improvement. It, it, for me, we have to start by going back to a conversation you and I have had about managers and about clubs for the three years we've been doing this show. Two and a half years, whatever the amount of timeline is. Um, it's a long time. Sorry, Tim. Um, that's, I, that's why we're top 40, mate. <laughs> you know, I, Get us in the I, top 20, guys. Tell your friends. I just think that there's... What Aston Villa did in the summer, in Oct- when, when what... August, September, whenever it was, they they ended up paying the five million to Villarreal for Unai Emery. It goes back to this conversation in which you and I have referenced: why don't clubs buy out managers? Why don't clubs make significant runs at managers and other jobs if they feel that that person's the right the right guy? You're going to spend up to eighty to one hundred and twenty million dollars on a player. I would suggest that a manager is more important than an individual player, especially with how difficult it is to manage the, the the individuals within the collective, the psychology that comes along with the tactics. Aston Villa knocked it out of the park. And there's a lot of people that I think we... we when we talk about Unai Emery, the good evening, kind of having fun with how he opened up his press conferences... People kind of turned it into a malicious thing. And then people try to make it something that it wasn't when it was just a bit of banter, right? Hmm. But the bit of banter also came along with a timeline in which Arsenal was trying to reestablish who they were from the inside out. They were still trying to reestablish who was in charge. Remember old Golden Balls, Sven Mislintent? Hmm. Um, he's done a great was, job, and he since he left. When he got fired from this week, was it Ajax? Where's he gone? Ajax, yeah, I think it was Ajax. Um, but figuring all that out, at a time crunch where you're dealing with Willian, you're dealing with the, uh, um, Luis, uh, you're dealing with Mesut Ozil, and kind of this this mismanagement from the inside out with a lot of dead rot in the squad and trying to try to usher in a new generation. And he was a good manager. Hmm. He, he was he was a really good manager. As to your point about the start of his of his reign at Arsenal, but then it fell apart. And where the optics are falling apart, it just felt very similar to what happened when he was at PSG and it fell apart. Hmm. So there was this... And and I think to an extent, he still has this question of can he manage big players? And can he manage big personalities? Can he manage elite of the elite players? He can manage some really good players. Hmm. But can he do the elite of the elite? Is Aston Villa the perfect job for him? I would suggest it is. And and that's not a shot towards Aston Villa. It's not a shot towards his players. But he's got his hands in a group that believes in what he and his staff are putting in front of him. The performances suggest that white lines, 90 minutes, three points, managing Europe, those are all fantastic things. But you think about the, the sweat equity that's earned over the course of the week. You think about the medical staff. You think about the strength and conditioning. You think about the dietary. You think about all of those things getting onto the field. And then the tactics and the management, and the personalities, and the frustrations, and the performance, and all of those things he and his staff are knocking out of the park. All of the results suggest it. The personality, the body language, it all suggests that. And and here's where 
Here's where I really think he's a fantastic manager. It's a simple data point. It's not about wins or losses. He's making players better. The level of performance and consistency of performances are better. Now we're talking about Douglas Louise and we're saying, oh, could you imagine him at, we're doing this thing we did with Declan oh, Rice. We're doing this thing it. we did with Caicedo. He's we're so good he could play for someone else. It's my least favorite thing in the world. So we're starting to do that. And what? And in a weird way, it's another compliment to Unai Emery and what he's doing with this group of players. So, yeah, I mean, listen, the the challenge for Newcastle United, the challenge for Brighton, the challenge for West Ham, the challenge for Aston Villa, uh, you can insert whatever other names you want. I'll just leave it with those four. The challenge is to continue to qualify for Europe. Hmm. And while you're in Europe, make deep runs, try to win trophies, but also the continuation of performances week in, week out in the Premier League. And again, we're participation trophy, participation ribbon season. We're at the end of October. Everybody's going to win the league. Everyone's going to qualify for Europe. He's checking those boxes. So credit where credit's due. I mean, Man City win the league by eight points, but let's enjoy this uh, this weird this weird moment we're in, nonetheless. Um, quick one on Ollie Watkins. Just want to mention how brilliant he has been uh, since Emery has come in. 26 goals in 33 appearances for Aston Villa in the Premier League uh, since Unai Emery. That's goal involvement in that time. 17 scored and nine assists. Only Mo Salah and Haaland have contributed mm. to more goals in that time. And, and the third goal they score against West Ham. Now... Uh, really good game at that point. 2-1, it's in the balance. West Ham have conceded a couple of crap goals. They've scored a crap goal, and it's back in the balance. Uh, John McGinn, who looks a man reborn, as does Douglas Luis, you mentioned. The ball to him, first time, about 30 yards into his path. Now, what I love about this goal, and I, I just love it when players are in, in form like this, right? Kurt Zuma is a really good defender. He can't move but he's a really good defender. So what you don't want to do is take Kurt Zuma on because you're not going to be able to get around him. But what you can do is sort of go wide and run past him, right? And Watkins obviously knows this, you know. So what he does, it's incredible. And it's such a great little moment. He knows he's got the pace, but he knows Zuma has got the goal protected. So all he can do is take it wide and fire it into a small angle. He knows he's against a goalkeeper in Areola who's got incredible reactions. So all he can do is do this quick. Do this quick, do this powerful, do this incisive, but get it right. And the amount of times you see people try and do what he tried to do, blast it against the crossbar, scuff it at the goalkeeper, hit the defender in front of him, knock it into the whole end, uh, which was behind the goal, whatever. But what he does, and if you haven't seen it, folks, go and check it out. It is vintage, elite-level striker play. Not to say he's in that bracket, but this is what this moment is. Takes it. Outside, split second, fired, left foot, incredible power, incredible precision, and a reaction goalkeeper like Ariola, he doesn't even have the time to consider a reaction because it's in the back of the net. Uh, Danny, I just loved it. And, you know, Emery's come in, he bins off Danny Ings, he picks Ollie Watkins, there's no backup to him, but he plays every minute, every game. Mm. The offense is built around him, and he's delivering goals like that. It's the kind of goal. That I just, I could, even though it was against my team, I watched it about 20 times because I just found it exhilarating. I, I, yeah, I, I also, as you were talking, I just went down the bench. I mean, think about this. You can bring on Leon Bailey, Yuri Tielemans coming from, uh, from Leicester City. Interesting to see what this looks like for Tielemans. I think he thought he'd have a bigger role. Bertrand Traore, Dindonker, Chambers, Lenglet, Diego Carlos, Tyrone Mings injured, Jacob Ramsey injured, Buendia injured. Mm. I mean, it's a good group. 
It's a good group. He's got good depth. Obviously, you're going to have players that are more important than others. Um, but Aston Villa is going to be, I think, going to be one of those teams that are going to be flirting with that top four spot, that that yep. fourth and final spot in Champions League. And we'll see if they can get over the line. Uh, and of course, Conference League as well for them. And the Premier League team should win that every single year. Could be an issue in the in the Premier League for them. But Europa League and uh, Europa League qualification and the Conference League trophy, it's... Um, it's pretty f***ing great, guys. I'd give it a whirl. Uh, sorry, Tim. Uh, listen, we're out of time, but I do just want to end on this, Danny, because um, it's such a huge story, and it's a massive thing over here. I'm sure it is for you as a Man United fan as well. Uh, so Bobby Charlton, sadly, passing away this weekend, 86 years of age. Um, one of the most incredible footballers in the history of English football. His story... I'll, I'll just do it shortly now, because other people will have done it considerably better than me, but to be in the group of players who were in the horrific Munich air disaster, to lose teammates, to lose colleagues at Manchester United, to come back from that, to then regain the ability to play football, to then play football for another decade for Man United, to score in the European Cup success uh, of 1968, to be a pivotal member of the, the elite 1966 World Cup squad, only uh, Sir Jeff Hurst from the starting eleven still with us. It's uh, uh, quite shocking to to kind of consider that, that 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 they've all now sadly left us that that great team that legendary team of english football um but an incredible legacy an incredible ambassador for manchester united yeah. and we can't play it here but there was a great video doing the rounds on social media it's up on mine um from a couple of days ago bearing in mind his legacy bearing in mind there's a stand named after him bearing in mind there's a statue of him outside bearing in mind he's you know, England's best player at the World Cup, all of this. The best thing I saw of Sir Bobby Charlton this week, Danny, was a video of him talking about being in the crowd at the 1999 Champions League uh, victory. And he talks about it in the same way I've talked to you about the 2012 playoff final when I celebrated wildly and fell down the seats and looked around for people I knew. And in the end, Bobby Charlton maybe arguably the greatest English player ever. And that's a fun debate to have. And we've certainly been having it here in England in the last few days. Um, to, to, to still have the love of your team and football to such a degree that he just enjoyed it like people listening. And he enjoyed it like me. And loved Man United and had an incredible moment and went searching for his wife and searching for his kids and searching for his friends in the crowd. Uh, just an incredibly relatable, likeable, brilliant individual. Mm. The giant amongst the giants of the yeah. English game. So uh, an incredible loss this week. Yeah, well, here here stateside, uh, we had Phil Neville and Tim Howard uh, on the coverage. So you had two players that spent a good amount of time at Manchester United, obviously, and telling the individual stories and listening about the amount of respect that the players showed Sir Bobby Charlton when he stepped inside that locker room and even guys that had their T-shirts off, putting T-shirts back on to make sure that they showed the proper amount of respect to stand up and shake his hand and look him in the eye and recognize what the opportunity was about. Uh, the player and the man, um, what he stood for. Uh, I even Max Bredos told me a story. He was over there doing something with Man United and Nike, and they did the, the stadium tour at Old Trafford. And he like put his foot over the line to put his foot on the grass. And Sir Bobby Charlton was actually in the stadium and he yelled, get your foot off the grass. It's hollow ground. From the very top. And Max is like, oh, shit, what'd I do? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. Um, I, I just, I, he always, for me as a Man United fan, 
obviously I've seen, you know, some of the replays and, and the YouTubes and all that stuff. I wasn't, I wasn't alive or aware of watching him during his heyday. Um, but he just hit his presence was royalty. Like if that, mm. if that makes sense, there was, there was, it felt like when he was in the room or he was in, on the television, you knew it was a big occasion. You knew Manchester United was in the house. There was that was the representation of what the crest was and what it was always meant to stand for. So, uh, yeah, uh, a, a huge, huge loss and thoughts and prayers for him and his family and everything that they're going through. Um, and it's been incredible to see. We sometimes forget that the individual player for a club. And then that transition moment from either vile hatred or love then transpires into, okay, what did he do for England? How, what did he represent for England? What did he represent for English football? It transcends what club versus country means. So yeah, incredible human being from all accounts. And uh, unfortunately, uh, another tough loss to swallow for, for football in general. Yeah. Um, right, that's it for this week's Week in the Tackle. Great to have you with us uh, for today's programme. We are back next Tuesday where Tottenham will still be top of the table and, you know, maybe West Ham would have won a game. Who knows? Um, I'm Tom Rennie. I've been pre- presenting the programme. We've all enjoyed it. That's Brian Dunseth. Tim Horsey produced it. Uh, if you're not subscribing on YouTube, you should do it. If you're subscribing on YouTube, you should download the podcast. Uh, and you can, like, sponsor us as well. Money would be great. See you next time. <laughs>